0: serves this is Sir Jean with your morning update in the afternoon I want to start off today by thanking my listeners my audience. I'm actually very surprised and shocked at how fast the listenership of this podcast has grown. you guys rock I appreciate uh, the comments uh, that are delivered through no Agenda social. I certainly appreciate the donations even though I haven't really asked for them a few people have donated. And most of all, I appreciate the subscriptions. I love the fact that you guys are hearing something interesting. And whether it's political or opinion or, or news, whatever it is that I'm talking about, ultimately, it should be entertaining for you guys. Because that's how I decide what I listen to. Is this something that's going to be providing me as, uh, some value in the form of entertainment? If it's without entertainment and it's just pure information... It, it's sort of like work in a way. So if I have to watch something just to dig deeper into it, even though it's a topic I'm not horribly interested in, I kind of see it as a form of labor to be done for some future payoff, whereas listening to a lot of people that I do, certainly to no Agenda, to Tim Poole and Tim Cast, to Lex Friedman's podcast, these are all things that combine providing information with a a very good entertainment value. I'm hoping I can do the same for you guys and continue doing so as well. So I've got a few stories to go over here. Let's see uh, how long that takes. If we get done quick, I'm sure I'll have some opinions to throw at you guys as well. All right, so the first thing is, I don't know how many people follow the the lawsuits that James O'Keefe brings up, which happen quite frequently, frankly. Project Veritas isn't just a news scoop organization that that works with insiders in uh, large companies certainly in politics as well to bring you information about the inner workings but the other thing that they're known for i think james o'keefe is very proud of is the fact that they are very litigious they will sue at the drop of a hat because everything that they produce everything they prepare is vetted multiple times to ensure that what they're presenting are facts, even if they're inconvenient facts to the mainstream media. Recently, they, they had sued the New York Times. I think five different journalists working for the New York Times. I even really hate to use that word, journalist, because frankly, these people aren't journalists. They're really, I guess you could call them writers. They do write to some extent, but I would have a very hard time calling anybody a journalist who doesn't even go so far as to do basic research for a story. All they do is put in a keyword into Google, look at literally the front page of Google, they don't bother going to the next page, and then use that as the the source for whatever story they're writing or as confirmation of whatever story they're writing. So in this lawsuit, Veritas alleges that they are suffering financial harm as a result of the characterization of Project Veritas as being biased, but I think even beyond biased as somehow making up information being completely what the left actually is doing. So that it's there, they had stories written about them, multiple stories in the New York Times, not just the New York Times, certainly, but for this particular lawsuit focused on the New York Times, claiming how their information is false. They, unlike most people and unlike most organizations, actually go after those companies that defamed them, which this would be, and they did in this case as well. The New York Times uh, submitted a motion to dismiss the lawsuit because, the, in their opinion, this was this lawsuit couldn't possibly hold any water because they're using the, well, there's two uh, two factors that they brought in. One was the defense of, well, that's an opinion of a journalist. Not everything we print are facts, and conveniently, those facts which were printed by the paper, but then found to be not true and therefore defamatory to Project Veritas, which is why Veritas sued them, that those were in fact merely opinions of the reporters and not facts. So part of their defense is they're they're alleging that anything that was not true was an opinion and everything else was a fact which is very convenient, but hopefully they're not going to get, to get away with that. that. The actual lawsuit, when it goes on, the arguments will be made on both sides for and against that kind of thinking. But the other issue that they brought in was listing 50 different media groups that all claim that Project Veritas is fake news and they hype things up and using that as a basis for the dismissal of the lawsuit. Now, the judge in this case, I think, did a very good job. He ruled against the New York Times dismissal, which just means that the actual lawsuit from Veritas can't continue. So there'll still be plenty of arguing to be done. But he definitely saw through the hype and said that simply because there may be 50 different websites or journalists, I hate to again use that word, that lists Project Veritas as being a questionable news source and uh, not truthful, doesn't actually prove anything. So essentially the judge said that the old 97% of all scientists agree or 9 out of 10 dentists agree that smoking is good for your teeth, that simply saying something like that doesn't actually factually make it true. It's a very good point to remember that in law, unlike in marketing and social media is basically marketing. That's really all it is. But in law, just because nine out of 10 dentists agree doesn't mean that nine out of 10 dentists are correct. Because the one dentist who didn't agree that smoking is good for your teeth, he may actually be the one that's correct. It's going to be up to the facts to determine whether or not it's the one side or the other side are correct. So he dismissed that as an argument from the New York Times. He also effectively, he didn't totally dismiss because this will be part of the main trial, but essentially said it's not really applicable as an argument for the dismissal of the case to talk about how your newspaper reporters were interjecting opinions in between facts. Because the, I can't remember the exact phrase, but it's something to the effect of that for the basis of a defamation lawsuit, that you simply have to show that to a average reasonable person that what they read appeared to indicate that these were facts. So it really didn't matter what the intentions of the writers were. It didn't matter what they thought were opinions interspersed between facts. The way that the story presented this information was that all of the information, including the the items that were defaming, were presented as fact. Going back after the the fact and selectively saying, well, that was really more of an opinion, that wasn't really something we said, even if that was thought of while being written, it doesn't affect the court case simply because to a reasonable average person, the fact that like an average, average person would not be able to tell apart the fact from the opinion in the way the story is written. There is nothing that says, and in our opinion, blah, 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 like that would have been a good defense to have specifically excluded an opinion from the other items, which were to be considered facts. Here you have a list of things that were rattled off by the media, by the New York Times uh, writer. There was no separation of opinion from fact therefore an average person could not find that there was anything that was an opinion and would naturally assume that everything would be a fact now this is this i think is very true for something like the new york times maybe even the washington post you could use that argument with certainly the wall street journal but you can't really use that same defense or that same argument if you're talking about the World News Daily or one of these newspapers of the old or websites of the new where the majority of the stories are going to be dealing with questionable topics like aliens and pyramids and frogs (laughs) becoming gay, things like that. So if there is a by a average reasonable person, if there's going to be a question as to whether things are real or fake to begin with, then you don't have the assumption that everything on that site is portrayed to be a fact. Then I think it would be easier to make the argument saying, well, these are just opinions. Maybe the frogs are gay, maybe they're not. My opinion is the frogs are gay and therefore there's nothing wrong with putting that out there. It's not a libelous or defamatory type of uh, claim that can be made against it. So, long story short, this lawsuit will continue. It will be I will certainly be monitoring it. It'll be interesting to see how the story, story moves forward with it. But for the time being, I think it's certainly a win for Project Veritas and James O'Keefe in that a judge in New York State, I think it's a federal judge, I believe, although I'm not looking at the story, so I don't remember... But the fact that the judge had essentially thrown out the um, New York Times motion for dismissal of the lawsuit is good. We'll keep watching it and see what happens. Let's see what else is happening. So there's a story that I read that I hadn't seen others talking about. And I'm kind of curious from maybe folks in the UK to shed a little more light on this. But apparently there's a story out that the UK Foreign Office had sought to recruit comedians and YouTubers to take part in a secret Baltic Psyop camp. So essentially the UK in its capacity of the foreign office, foreign and Commonwealth office. I'm not sure if that, in fact, I, I don't believe that is their spy office, but certainly that would be where propaganda could be created and paid for that would serve the British empire. That would certainly fall under the force of foreign office. But apparently there are now civil lawsuits being instigated in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania against this propaganda campaign that was being paid for by London, potentially with ties to Washington, to the U.S., but it's it's in the very early stages of uh, information coming out about it. The idea was from a sort of, if we look at this from a legitimate standpoint, it appears that... The UK Foreign Office was putting money, investing into building pro-Western culture, which, frankly, in this case, basically means pro-politically correct culture, frankly, an anti-Russian culture, uh, anti-old Eastern Europe culture, putting together teams of paid YouTubers and comedians that would be targeting those countries essentially northern Eastern Europe, in local languages to promote this. I don't know how much difference there is between what they were trying to achieve and what certainly Voice of America and the United States has been doing for many years, which is broadcasting pro-US, pro-Western messages. You could certainly call it propaganda, but regardless of whether you call it propaganda or not, it it is messaging paid for by governments to affect the thinking of people in other countries. In its broadest sense, it is absolutely meddling in local politics, meddling in, I don't know if I would say local elections. It depends on the specifics of the messaging, but if you have a a YouTuber in Latvia that is a a local YouTuber or is targeting that uh, audience, even if they're not local, they could be living in the US or the UK or somewhere else, but their YouTube channel is targeting that type of audience, if they are being paid for by the UK government and being given certain messages to make sure that they insert into their program, and if that happens at a point in time, which is during an election cycle, and the messaging is actually affecting the outcome of the election, boy, that is that would actually be, a I think, a more obvious and conclusive case of election tempering than anything that was ever proven about Russian meddling or frankly even Chinese meddling during elections. I remember when the Chinese gave uh, Hillary Clinton sizable donations there was a little blip about that in media and is that legitimate is she giving it back because there shouldn't be any direct uh, election contributions coming from across borders Even though we all know that Saudi Arabia and and a lot of the friendly Arab countries were very generous donors to multiple presidents on both sides of the aisle. The Bushes got plenty of money from them. The Clintons got money from them. The Obama camp got money from them. These are all stories that we've heard and were talked about on the Agenda. So it is happening. But aside from the hard money stuff, is it still questionable? Is it still technically election tampering? if it's done not by paying bribes to politicians, but rather by paying people who communicate with the voters, and certainly not openly, right? So these people didn't voluntarily say, and by the way, we're sponsored by the UK government. This is a story that came out as a, it was revealed through leaks, not something that was publicized officially is if the UK government is paying people on social media on YouTube and uh, performers, like I think they specifically mentioned comedians here, but it could be any type of entertainer or performer. If they're being paid for by a foreign country to provide a certain message, during an election cycle, would that not be election tampering? I tend to decide on the side of yes, it would be, but I'm not 100% convinced either. I could certainly be probably convinced otherwise through a good argument, but it seems to me like you're, you're very much in the gray area. You could easily cross over into the, the absolutely election tampering area that would be unquestionable very easily. Imagine if we find out that I don't know, let's pick a random entertainer that's popular right now. I don't want to pick George Clooney because he's been overused way too much, but let's, I don't know, let's pick Iron Man. God, what's the actor's name? That'll come to me. Anyway, the guy that plays Iron Man, let's say we find out that Iron Man has been not just having his movies produced by China, which we know China money is funding a lot of those comic book projects, but let's say that more directly, God, I forget his first name, Downey Jr.? Is that his last name? God damn it. It sucks getting old, guys. You start getting old, you you like can imagine you can see things uh, right in front of you. You feel the word on the tip of your tongue, Robert Downey Jr. But it you can't immediately remember it when you're trying to think of what it is. It sometimes takes a little longer. It sucks. Anyway, let's say we find out that he was directly paid a fifty million dollar fee by China to make sure that that there was a, I don't know, something that was innocuous enough that nobody really picked up on it, maybe some particular speech pattern, maybe the color of the clothes he wears, maybe the way that he he does something that is a nod to the CCP, to the Chinese Communist Party, something that essentially would portray the the party as being the good guys and not the bad guys. And certainly even... I think it would be a little bit of a stretch to say that simply putting in money to produce a movie is also enough to be considered election tampering. I think that is insulated far enough away that it would be a real stretch to do that. But nonetheless, we all know that they're not just putting money into Hollywood, especially now during the Hollywood sort of dark days when uh, movies aren't getting made as much. Certainly the viewership is way, way, way down the whole movie theater industry has basically been killed off now. So why would somebody put money in there? It's it's a much higher risk today than it would have been 10 years ago. But if they know that they can actually affect the production somehow, if maybe they can have, hey, wh- why don't we have more uh, Chinese extras in this movie? It doesn't really matter who the extras are. Let's just make them Chinese. Let's have some guys that are maybe Chinese tourists and they're all happy and walking by in the background that you don't see. They've got little Chinese flags with them, so you know that they're not some generic Asians, but they're actually Chinese Asians. You know, it's innocuous. It doesn't really do anything. But once you start seeing that in a lot of different movies and you see how friendly and happy Chinese tourists are, and you just kind of start thinking, oh, yeah, China is one of the good Asian countries, right? I think it, that it must have, the virus must have come out from one of the bad countries like... Uh, Mongolia or something, I don't know, one of those other backwards uh, Asian-type countries. I'm not saying that Mongolia is backwards. I actually like their music a lot. They've got some cool stuff happening. But there are ulterior motives to money being invested. I guess the point of the story that I started off talking about on this was that we just found out that the UK had a, a program in place to fund money into YouTubers and comedians to affect the perceptions, the minds, and and certainly potentially the politics of the Baltic states, which would be Estonia, Lithuania, the guys that border Russia very close, let's put it that way. All right, let's move on. Oh, this was fun. Okay, I'm going to mispronounce this. I know I will, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is the Icelandic volcano's name. Fagrdalsfjall. Fagrdalsfjall. So people that speak Icelandic, you're welcome for the laugh. The volcano erupted near Iceland's capital, Reykjavik. And the fun little bit that I made up from that is I saw the photo and I saw a helicopter flying in the photo. So I just had to make a little caption that says, the latest report shows that the biggest impactor of human-made global warming are Icelandic volcanoes. Uh, Just leave it at that. Of course, the irony there being that it's man-made global warming, but it's being caused by a volcano. But it's still man-made because that's how it is. 97% of all scientists agree the science is in. Then, of course, the other thing is that let's not blame China. Let's not blame any of the other countries that are cranking out carbon dioxide in massive amounts, if we're really going to look at carbon dioxide. Let's blame a little tiny country like Iceland. Because they can't defend themselves. They have less population than most U.S. states for their entire country. So let's just blame somebody like that. Plus, they're all white. They're like no people of any other color in Iceland other than white. I think the ones that show up there having a different color, they get bleached by the wind and the sun and the snow. So pretty much Iceland is the prototypical 100% white country. And it's very convenient to start blaming countries that are completely white because it's very convenient to blame white people because they won't push back because white people are being taught to just take it up the ass. That's what it's all about. It's all about taking taking somebody that isn't willing to fight back and then piling more and more onto them to a point where now even if they wanted to fight back, it, it seems overwhelming because if you're white... Not only are you white, but you're actually a Nazi now. You just don't really know it. It may not even really be your fault. It's probably your parents' fault. But if you're white, you are really the, the demon race. You're the most evil people in the world. And you're going to have to pay for that whiteness through reparations, through segregation, through a changing of the standards that you have to meet. If you happen to be a male, which is uh, just under 50% of the population, yes, there are more white women than white men because men don't live as long. So if you happen to be that 49, 48% of the population who's also a male, not just white, you've got a double whammy. You're even worse than the horrible white people because being a male means that you've essentially been running this whole system. And you've forced all the white females to do all these evil things that they've done. We know they've done them because there are other white people that are writing books about them. And there's a few black people taking advantage of that and writing their own books about how evil white people are. But women know that... They have no brain. They will never make their own decisions. They can't do anything without men. Therefore, it's always men that are responsible for everything bad that can possibly happen. When it happens to an entire color of skin of people, an entire group of people that are united by that skin color, that just proves the point. It's convenient that all the worst people on the planet happen to have the same color skin. It makes it much easier to just sort of classify people by skin color rather than by their actions. Makes it much easier to be able to see who is responsible for all the evil versus who clearly couldn't possibly be responsible. So when there's violence on Asian people, even though everybody knows that the majority of the violence against Asian people is perpetrated by black people, that, that is clearly the case if you start looking at police reports. But that doesn't matter because since we know all white people are evil, It must be the evil white people that are also perpetrating violence against Asians. So every imagined version, everything that's propagandistic that is talking about how Asians are being attacked now shows white people attacking Asians. Everything from actual police body cams and from the videos, if available, from the cell phones of the Asian people shows it's black people attacking the Asian people. Now, there's also certainly Asian-on-Asian attacks. There are Asian gangs, just like there are black gangs and white gangs and Latino gangs and every other kind of gangs. And you probably will find the occasional Karen out there that is willing to throw something in the face of an an Asian uh, server because she didn't like their service. Certainly that happens. But in general, the presentation of whites being the ones responsible for all this anti-Asian sentiment and, and really hate crime against Asians is complete bunk. That is pure propaganda. I think that a lot of people can see through it, but unfortunately, not all people can see through it. And you have to remember, there's still a segment of the population that will just blindly believe this stuff. The low information voters, the people that were responsible for Biden getting elected, all Kidding aside from from dead people voting, there were plenty of real people voting for Biden because I've talked to them. I've heard from them. I've watched their videos. These are people that were essentially, I don't know anything about them. I I just don't like Trump. Like Trump is just a dick. He's an asshole, so he needs to go. I really don't care who replaces him. These people would have voted for AOC. They would have voted for Bernie. They would have voted for Hillary. Um, And Hillary is probably the most centrist of the candidates the Democrats have run. Certainly her husband was the most centrist. These people don't care. They just didn't want to have Trump in there. With that in mind, I don't think it's that hard to believe that there are people that genuinely believe that the white devil is the cause of all wickedness and evilness and is born with a a satanic, or, well, to them, they wouldn't call it satanic, right? Because most of them are atheists. So they would call it a, a fascist seed, so you're born tainted. You're born with original fascist sin if your skin happens to be white. That's how it works. Of course, if you're from Wakanda, well, then you're lucky because you're not born with original sin. You're born with, a, with the challenge of having to teach all the evil, wicked white people of just how bad they are. All right, that's probably enough racism for this episode.. Huh? Should we move on? What else we got i- I got a couple other stories that i've was looking through, yeah, so the migrant thing is kind of getting out of out of hand a little bit, I think, so it looks like there's now fifty and a half thousand migrant kids held in captivity now this I don't know if they're an endangered species or not, so we have to be careful about making sure that they get enough medical help while they are held in captivity because we may we may need to repopulate the wilds that they originally came from this group this may be all there is left okay apparently there wasn't enough racism so i'm gonna keep going but yeah that's a real number fifty and a half thousand uh, migrant kids that is a higher number than we ever had during trump's era that's a higher number than were ever held at border patrol points when aoc went down there and then cried in front of cameras next to a fence that was next to a burger king because that was a convenient location for her to be at. Because who, who cares? We didn't see any photos of the kids anyway. We just saw her standing next to a fence and crying. So the location of the fence was really secondary to her emotional state. At all those poor children that were being held away from their parents because they showed up without their parents. How dare the government hold children that were there with no adults away from their parents? That is just horrible. Clearly what the U.S. should be doing is sending troops All through Mexico and Latin America in general, looking for the parents of these children and then bringing them together and reuniting these groups. That is really what ought to be the new mission for the Border Patrol. Because if the U.S. Border Patrol isn't going to patrol the U.S. border, which Biden pretty much said with his executive order, they're not allowed to do anymore, I'd hate for all those people to just lose their jobs. I know people are calling to defund the U.S. Border Patrol, but why don't we just change the mission of the U.S. Border Patrol to something that's just more benevolent, like finding the parents of the children that ran away from their parents and then reuniting the children with those parents and then making sure that that we find everybody that currently is sitting in a fenced-off camp that Biden created on the border then find their legitimate parents or guardians because, you know, frankly, some of them may not have parents. That certainly could be a possibility if their parents were working as mules in the drug trade. There's a very high mortality rate for those people. It's a sad but true fact. So if you're a mule in the drug trade, you're probably not going to be a mule for more than a couple of years before you end up dying from a drug overdose when a condom explodes in your gut. And the cocaine just rushes in and gives you a heart attack instantly. We have to still be able to return those kids somewhere. So maybe the guardians would be the drug cartels that their parents work for. That would be a good place to look anyway, to start looking maybe. And until you find the guardians of the children, maybe the drug cartels would be... I'm sure we could encourage the drug cartels to be able to offload and take care of these children during that interim of time while the... U.S. Border Patrol is looking for their legitimate parents. So I think we could solve this problem. I'm optimistic. I think it's just a matter of time until somebody in Biden's administration has the same thought that I did, comes up with the same simple solution to make sure that these kids are reunited, and that is to, first and foremost, to retask the U.S. Border Patrol with search operations in other foreign nations in search of the children's parents. And secondly, working and creating a system, maybe the U.S. pays some money to the as a goodwill gesture to the various cartels that these children's parents may work for. And then in, in exchange, the cartels would promise to provide for the children in the interim and then to house them. That way, it seems like a win-win situation. So I just can't wait till I'm actually reading that story of Biden's administration finding the creative solution. It, it may not be the final solution Biden comes up with, but maybe it will be the, his final solution. We'll find out. Only time will tell. All right, what else is going on? Obviously, that whole last segment was a joke. I don't know if I need to say that or if people can tell by my tone of voice. But since you're not looking at my friendly smiling face, I figured I would mention it anyway. So there's a lot of fighting going on in Europe. And honestly, I think there's a... There are more protests happening in Europe right now than I think the than the US by a long shot. There are anti-lockdown protests in Europe. There are anti-pro vaccine protests in Europe. There are also protests in Europe against against the anti-vaccine vacciners as well. There are protests in Europe against the shift to authoritarian culture. Let's see. There's a there's some Oh, trans rights protests that I saw happening in Europe as well. I think there was one more European protest story that I saw. Let me try and find it here. But nope, that's New York story. Okay, so London anti-lockdown. And Amsterdam police are probably... Yeah, they're also dealing with the anti-lockdown ground. And in Amsterdam, they're just using electric cattle prods and German shepherds, it looks like. So... They are very good at finding how to control their populations. They're also using water cannons. Well, that's a tried and true thing to use, especially in the winter. Water cannons in the winter are great at dispersing protesters. People start realizing that being cold and wet and in a time where there's a higher susceptibility to, to the flu, which we've now renamed COVID, that it's a lot easier to get sick when you're cold and wet than when you're dry and warm. So good job, Dutch police, in using water cannons. That is wonderful. The fact that people are standing there with umbrellas while water cannons are being used is, it's it's a little funny, but it's also a little sad, I have to say. There's a lot of sadness with these protesters as well. Germany looks like there's anti-lockdown protesters. This is good. So the only place we're not really seeing this is the US. In the US, the protesters are not protesting lockdowns. In the US, the protesters are protesting the crazy white people who don't like wearing masks. Here we're seeing protests that are like the New York protests, which had nothing to do with lockdowns, but it was focused on, I think at least one of the banners I saw was tax the rich. So I'm glad to see that in the US, our priorities are screwed on very straight. It's it's not, not about the lockdowns, not about the, the COVID related stuff. It's Not about the fact that the government has done its darndest to crash the economy. Nope. It's about the fact that we ought to tax the rich more. Now, I'm not opposed to taxing the rich more. I I will say that whatever libertarian sort of eternal truth mentality I had that said you, you can't tax anybody any higher than any other person because regardless of how much money somebody makes, the the taxation has to be even and fair and not progressive. I think from a practical standpoint, I'm just getting tired of defending the tax rights of the people that want to screw things up for everybody else. I'm tired of worrying about guys like Bill Gates and guy, frankly, any of the Google guys, of uh, the Facebook guy, really anybody in tech who right now is using their corporate power to cancel diverging opinions. Whatever side they're on, whatever opinions they have formed are the only opinions that are allowed in their companies, both for their own employees, but also the only opinions allowed on their platforms. So you literally can't mention certain words on YouTube. You certainly can't mention certain phrases on Facebook because you will just get turned off. Your channel will be deleted. And I've seen this happen a number of times to people that I've known. So with that in mind, I just, I think we should start taxing the rich. And I think that ultimately, I think, I first really heard of this from John Dwarak, but I'm sure it's a much older kind. I'm starting to be in favor of a wealth tax, not just an income tax, because the wealth tax is really what all of us in the middle class already have anyway. And that wealth tax comes in the form of property taxes. And the biggest chunk of property that any middle-class person has is their home. It's the home and the land that it sits on. The taxes on those homes have been steadily increasing in all states, in certain states, certainly like Texas, which doesn't have an income tax, which is good, but it makes up for that by having a higher-than-average state property tax. And the property tax on a typical $500,000 home will make a much bigger dent in the total amount of income of a person that can afford that home. A person who is, let's say, making from 80 to 150,000 dollars a year. So basically, like a entry-level developer, entry-level dude named Ben Job, that would probably start at about 85k and then quickly get to over 150. So I'm only half kidding there. That is kind of where the reality rates are these days. Somebody coming out of college with a a degree in software design is gonna typically start around 80K or so. Anyway, so that property tax as a percentage of your total income is much, much higher than what it would be if you had a $2 million house or let's say even a $5 million house, but you were receiving most of your income not from a salary, but from capital gains or from investment income. And your income was in the neighborhood of two or three million a year. Paying the property tax in a $5 million house at that point is just really not that big a deal. So having a wealth tax versus a straight income tax, I think would go a long way towards not even providing all that much money. Because let's face it, the people that have enough wealth to be able to, to have a sufficiently high enough payment from that wealth on a yearly basis is fairly small. It's not going to make a sufficient dent in the U.S. budget at all, but it, what it will do is we will take some of the isolation that people get as a result of getting substantial wealth. It'll take some of that insulation away from them, and that's a good thing It's a good thing from a populist standpoint because that insulation allows these people to make the absolutely asinine decisions that they do, which will affect millions of people that are not in their financial class. When YouTube starts deplatforming and then eventually altogether canceling YouTube channels, and I think we've had the conversation, if not we will, about the perils of being on a platform that you rely on for all your income. That's not a smart move to begin with, but let's just put that to the side for now, whether it's a smart move or not. But when that happens, when somebody says, oh, I can't believe people are still watching Alex Jones, let's add a filter to our platform that scans for the word Alex Jones, and if any other YouTube channel mentions the word Alex Jones or the phrase Alex Jones, Let's just automatically deplatform them and have somebody start reviewing their videos. And if there's anything in there that's controversial, let's just go ahead and shut them down altogether. The person that can make that decision to be able to say that has to be sufficiently insulated themselves to not worry about their income uh, or their status in society. I think that having a wealth tax would go along with increasing the humility level of people like that. It used to be that somebody would be considered to be very rich if they were a millionaire. I remember in the 80s where the culture was pretty much the opposite of what is today. I was a kid, so I certainly wasn't doing any of these things. I was just watching them on TV and and seeing them in the surrounding area. But growing up in the 80s, you saw that being entrepreneurial, that taking chances, taking risks, and going for those golden prizes at the top was extremely popular. That was the thing that was to be rewarded is to be somebody that can invent something that will take America and in course all of humanity to the next level. So growth in business, personal growth, personal financial independence, these were all very good things. In the 80s, people had an average income that was significantly lower than it is today, but not really lower based on, based on the real inflation numbers. Based on real inflation numbers, people actually had higher incomes in the 80s than they do today. I remember, I think one of my first jobs was working in McDonald's when I was 14 or 15 years old. That job paid $4 an hour. $4 an hour in the mid 80s, is about equivalent to $17 an hour right now, I think. Right around there. And by the way, I'm not trying to make an argument for increasing the minimum wage. I What I'm saying is that the dollar has been so deflated that right now people are earning less than they were going back to the 80s, so 30 plus years ago, almost 40 years ago. They have a lower earning capacity. And yet... Incomes of $100,000 were not unheard of in the 80s. There were plenty of dual income business professionals that were bringing in $50,000, $60,000 each for a combined income of $100,000. So $100,000 at a roughly, let's just be conservative, at a, about a 3x increase in inflation. So roughly $100,000 in the 1980s had the same spending power as roughly $300,000, it's a little more than 300, but let's just round it down to $300,000 today in 2021. So 45 years ago, let's say. So I don't know too many people making three, $400,000. I actually do know quite a few people making, but they're actually making more than that. I know a lot of people making around a hundred and I know a lot of people making millions. I don't know a whole lot of people making three to $400,000 because That was a number you could get to on two people on the salary back in the 80s. That's not the case today. You can't get to that on the salary. It's extremely rare. By the way, the the new person making $80,000 that I mentioned coming out of school. So there again, in the 80s, now it was much more rare a degree to have a computer science degree, but certainly an engineering degree, when you would come out of school, you would be making $25,000, $30,000 dollars. And twenty-five to $30,000 is about eighty to $90,000 in today's money. So really, inflation has happened, not, not so much an increase in the lifestyle or the payments. But while that inflation has been happening, we've also seen the gig economy that kind of blew up with the advent of phones, cheap phones and the internet, that really pays a lot less than that. On the gig economy, you're making 12 to 20 bucks an hour. And I'd say an average of probably 15 if you're like an Uber driver or something. So you're really making about $30,000 a year. If you were to do it full-time, most people either do it extremely part-time and it's, so it's just extra money or they do it more than full-time because it's not a full-time job. It's not restricted to 40 hours. There are limits as to what Uber would let you drive. I think they require like an eight hour or maybe even a 12 hour break in between something like that. But That's still, people are going to be working a lot more than eight-hour shifts voluntarily doing the gig economy thing because otherwise they're making sub-poverty wages, essentially. I will say that watching this develop has definitely created more exceptions in my mind to pure libertarian principles. In the 90s, it was very easy to be a libertarian because what you saw coincided with the principles. Work hard, you get to play hard. You do things that stab somebody else in the back, you get punished for it later. Karma had a very quick and immediate kick in the ass. But as we shifted to the 2000s, the 2010s, there was more dissociation from doing nasty evil things and getting any kind of payback. There was also seemingly more randomness to the success of people. Things that really shouldn't have been that successful because people ought to know better, became very successful. And so with the advent of Facebook, where literally millions, hundreds of millions of people voluntarily disclosed information about them, their closest friends and relatives, their goings-on day-to-day, including documenting with, with photos and audio and video, and doing all these things effectively to fuel an advertising and a surveillance state around them is just mind-blowing. To any of us that worked in the security field, which I did at that point in time, it was absolutely unbelievable how much data people were willing to give up. Anytime I would create an account on any of these social media things, it would always be using completely fake data and free emails that I got by signing up for another Google email or something. It was to... Able to utilize that system without contributing any value to it. But for the vast majority of the people, they were perfectly willing and happy to provide all their data, all their private information, the things that they just a couple decades earlier would have considered absolutely insane to tell anybody. Like you wouldn't tell these things to somebody on the phone if they asked you just some random questions. Even if you knew who that person that was asking you was, you're like, Well, that's kind of my business, isn't it? You have no business knowing who I spent last night with. Nope. It's on Facebook now. You find out who everybody spent last night with. It's on Instagram. Oh look, they're 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 happy with their to provide proof and details of their images. Whether they went somewhere, whether they met with somebody it's just, uh, and, and granted, yes, it's not near even necessarily reality. It's like a fictitious version of them that is overly glamorized generally, that's on Instagram. But nonetheless, there's just so much data available now that would have been considered absolutely personal data, if not strictly private, but certainly personal data. And they were giving all of this data up knowing... Theoretically, now certainly some people were uninformed, but at least theoretically, knowing if they would have read the terms, that all this data was going to be used by advertisers to better target them, that all this data could go to the US government anytime they wanted to. As we saw recently with US Bank volunteering records of anybody, any of their customers who had made purchases in the Virginia and DC area around January 6th. If you happen to be there on a business trip for whatever reason, your data was provided to the FBI just because banking system felt like, why not? Let's just, we have the data, let's just give it to the FBI and help them out because we hate Trump, really. That's the why not part, right? Is because ultimately somebody in that company disliked Trump so much that they're willing to use their customers in a way that certainly their customers were never intending their data to be used. When you got a credit card from a bank you got it so you get some cash back from the credit card company, which is what they advertise. You got it to get a bigger credit line extended to you. You probably didn't really think that the reason you got that credit card is so that the bank can track your whereabouts. They can tell where you go, where you shop, what locations you visit, how often you go there, and then sell that information. But that's exactly what they did. That's what everybody's doing. Yeah, this is why I understand that a lot of people are frustrated and uh, I'm personally disappointed, probably more than frustrated, but what do you do, right? What do you do with that disappointment? Because when people don't give a shit, when people see nothing wrong with enabling technologies that are used to control you, it really does demonstrate what I said a few shows earlier, which is that the US has gone over the cusp of greatness. The US now is on the downward side of the trend that every empire goes through. The thing that happened in Rome, happened in the UK, happened in the USSR, happened in pretty much every country that's ever had an empire because all those empires eventually collapse. And the collapse doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a year, but it does happen at some point. I think COVID is going to be a very good defining point in history books a hundred years down the road for when the u s collapsed, when the u s empire ceased to be an empire, and the u s simply became a country that is what 's happening right now. so the real question is how do we adapt to no longer living in an empire? How do we adapt to living in a country? There would be certainly people that maybe even people listening right now that 'll start uh, bitching about me and say, like, oh, you're giving up, you're betraying the cause, you're not gonna fight for it. No, here's the thing, guys. Uh, there, there is a finger to point here. That finger to point is exactly at the people that were getting rich in the 80s. That finger to point is exactly at the boomers. The boomers got all the benefit of the 80s. They got the benefit of investing in Apple, in Amazon, in all these companies in the 2000s and the 90s. Yeah, it's starting with the 90s, but all through the 2000s. The boomers had all these financial benefits to them. What did they do with their children? They put their children into little boxes for quote unquote, their own safety because they were too afraid or didn't want to risk anyway, having their children be exposed to the real world. And when those children grew up, when those children started voting, when those children started getting their jobs, they came completely unprepared compared to previous generations. They came out there with very strongly defined ideas of what it means to be them. What that means is, I need to be protected from everything bad. This is where cancel culture comes from. This is where safe spaces come from. This is where the idea that People shouldn't be allowed to say things that make me feel bad, comes from. It really comes from the way that the boomer parents were parenting. They were horrible parents. They were god-awful. They acted contrary to everything that we learn in nature. What do children of any species on the planet do? They learned survival techniques by playing with each other, by roughhousing, by getting hurt. This is why if a kid breaks a bone it doesn't really affect them negatively in later life. Because when a bone breaks during the growth phase and it heals back up, it actually ends up being a stronger bone than it previously was. When, When a person in their 50s and 60s breaks a bone, that bone will never be as strong as that bone was before the break. So this is why the repair facilities during youth are so much better. This is why historically, humans have had more than two children because, yes, I'm going to say it, not every kid got to survive out to old age. A lot of kids died from a variety of causes, some from disease, but certainly some from doing stupid things and paying the price for doing something stupid and dying. My, uh would have been, I guess, my great uncle, one of my dad's brothers, he ended up drowning when he was in his late teens because he was drinking and then decided to swim across a river. So you do stupid things, you pay stupid prices. That's how it has always worked. The boomer generation decided that, nope, we've made so much money. We've been so successful. We have conquered the natural, physical world to such an extent that we can isolate our children and ensure 100% survival with 100% happiness. And what do they get? Well, they got children that are mostly hopped up on Ritalin and other mood-altering drugs. They've got a generation that has horrible social skills. And worst of all, they have a generation which has zero empathy. You know why? They Now, they act like they think they have empathy. They care about the black people and minorities and women and everybody else. No, that's not empathy. That's just joining a club. All you're doing is you're joining some club to walk around with flags. Same thing the Nazis did back in the 1930s. That's exactly what these guys are doing. No, real empathy means being able to understand how somebody who's different than you, not somebody who's just like you, feels. When you have real empathy, you tend to have fewer and fewer harsh, strong opinions. You start understanding how somebody else who's not like you lives and thinks And you can't achieve that understanding. You cannot have empathy if you were isolated your entire childhood, if you were kept safe in a box and the only interactions that you had were with things and people who your parents deemed to be safe. Those are people like you that requires no empathy. That doesn't develop empathy. Only being around people who are different than you develops empathy. By the way, Anybody that's sitting in a college room, a college classroom, there's nobody different than you in there. You're all college students and your professors are teaching you the same ideas. Being in college does not develop your empathy at all. Living somewhere where you're physically interacting with kids, with people from a different social strata, a different cultural background, these are things that develop empathy. If, if you're the black kid who uh, lives close to Chinatown, And you end up fighting with, and then eventually becoming friends with Asian kids. That will develop empathy. And the same thing for the eight mile example. It's like when you're around areas where there's a lot of both cultural diversity and financial diversity, that will develop empathy. Because you start seeing people as people and not as groups of people. So anybody who mainly sees other people as a member of a group, That is a very clear sign of a lack of empathy that has ever been developed by that person. And of course, they will try and explain to you how you're wrong, and that's certainly not the case. But they don't understand. They just don't know any better. It's like trying to explain sunlight to somebody who's been living in a cave their entire life. They've never gone outside. They've been cooped up inside. And you're trying to explain to them what it feels like to be out in sunlight. Like the literal positive feeling that that creates in us, when vitamin D generation is turned on in our skin, we get endorphins. That is a natural mechanism in all humans that helps us to do things. Like, wh- why do endorphins exist? Endorphins exist to guide you, when you don't know any better, towards things that are beneficial for you. And so, things that feel good. Exercise. You don't want to do it until you do it. Once you do it, you feel great. Why? Why? because it's good for you. Being out in sunlight, you don't really want to do it because you're too busy working, you're too busy partying, you're too busy doing whatever. Once you get out in sunlight and and you've got that sunshine on your skin, you start feeling good. You got endorphins pumping. These are all things that nature has pre-programmed into us literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. But what the boomer generation did to their children, and I've seen plenty of Gen Xers continuing on with this as well, is to take them out of that natural environment and keep them in a box, locked up for their own safety. So who do we have to blame for the fall of the American empire, which has already happened? Well, we can certainly start pointing the finger at a lot of the millennials that are participating in the downfall. But really, if you analyze it, you have to point the finger at their parents because their parents are the ones that were ultimately responsible for the way their children turned out. And the way their children turned out in this particular generation, and I know I'm generalizing about uh, millennials, I'm saying it from a statistical standpoint, not from a group standpoint. There are plenty of millennials who don't fit this mold because their parents didn't fit the mold. But for the millennials that do fit the mold, odds are your parents treated you exactly the way that I'm describing. And that group, unfortunately, is the mechanism for the downfall of the U.S. Their parents are the cause of the downfall of the U.S. So on that happy topic, I'm going to leave you guys. Hopefully this episode wasn't too long for you. I know they've been getting a little longer every time I do them. I'm just shocked at how long I can keep talking with nobody responding to me, I guess. But hopefully you uh, like the episode and you continue listening. If you haven't subscribed yet, I would certainly appreciate you doing that. If you do want to donate, if you want to contribute, I'm not quite ready to start asking for it. But I do give you a place to do it. Let's just put it that way. There is a link in the podcast episode if you do want to contribute something. Thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for joining me. Please do keep in mind that nothing in this podcast represents financial, legal, or medical advice.